Very good. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the Return of the Shadow. This is class number eight, uh, in which we um, are going to get to Rivendell. We're actually going to get to Rivendell today. I'm almost certain of it. Uh, we'll see how we do. Um, so, of course, I'm still kind of uh, 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 riding the high from last week, you know, which was just one of the most exciting classes I've taught in years. That was awesome uh, to uh, to find that moment and talk about the poem and everything. That was um, that was wonderful. So. This week, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on from there. Of course, we'll carry right on from there immediately after the end of the poem. Uh, but first, two quick announcements. First, number one, um, we have um, a new seminar, which was supposed to start this week, um, but is now next week, uh, the new seminar by Verlin Flieger, who's going to do a two-part series, which she's calling Tolkien in the Dark. Uh, this is the early, darker works of Tolkien that a lot of people, uh, well, a lot of people didn't ever have the chance to read before, um, but uh, which have been recently published. She's starting her first seminar on the Kulervon, and the second one on the Lay of Eotru and Itrun. Both of these, of course, are uh, books that she has edited uh, uh, for the Tolkien Estate here in the last couple of years. Um, so the, the uh, you know wonderful opportunity to get to hear more about those works, get to hear Dr. Flieger, uh, who of course knows them as well as anyone outside of Christopher Tolkien. So uh, wonderful opportunity. The first session was meant to be this past Monday, two days ago, um, but we experienced bizarre technical difficulties of a kind I've never had before, and they were super frustrating. Um, so we ended up... Um, uh, we ended up having to uh, uh, delay that until next Monday. So her two sessions are going to be the Coolervo session on Monday and the uh, uh, the Lay of Eotru and Etrune section on Thursday, both at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, so a little bit earlier for the Europeans than this class, anyway, four hours earlier. Uh, so anyway, so I hope that you'll uh, be able to uh, to do those. If you want to find the links to those, again, go to signumuniversity.org, scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see the, uh, uh, the event page with the links uh, for that. On the subject of things you can find under events on signumuniversity.org is MythMoot. MythMoot 4 is this coming summer in the beginning of June. And the uh, uh, the, the first draft of the program for the weekend has been released. Uh, so I wanted to encourage you to look at that. Um, it's going to be such an awesome time. I am so stoked for MythMoot this year. So uh, I hope that uh, you, many of you will be able to join me. I look forward to meeting many of you. I always have such a good time uh, talking with... Uh, Mythgard Academy regulars. So many of you over the last, you know, three, four years that we've been doing this now, uh, the Mythgard Academy, you know, so many of you have become such a, su- such a close part of the family. And, uh, uh, you know, I always enjoy being able to sit with you and talk with you and uh, go to sessions with you and hang out with you guys um, at uh, uh, Midmoot and Mythmoot and the other opportunities that we've had to get together. So I, I really look forward to that and I hope you guys will, uh, um, will come join us. So, that is my second announcement. So again, go to the event page, go to the MythMoot page, and you can see the, uh, the, the program to begin to get a taste for all the stuff that's going to be happening there. So, um, uh, yeah, cool. Um, uh, so, uh, oh, and Karita, no. Answer is no. Anyway, so good. All right, let's jump back into uh, the... Um, Let's, let's, let's jump back into the Return of the Shadow because I've, I've made an extremely ambitious program tonight. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see how far we get. So, okay. 
Of course, we remember what happened last time. I think I scarcely need to recap that. We found the moment when the two worlds came together, when uh, uh, Tolkien finally took the step of genuinely integrating his mythology with his current story. You know, we have, like, the... The, the mythology which began with the Book of Lost Tales, all that Silmarillion material, we have The Hobbit and The Hobbit sequel, and now those two things like peanut butter and chocolate have finally come together at the moment when Trotter segues to the Baron and Luthien poem in Tolkien's inclusion of, and as we looked at last time, very significant revision of uh, the Light as Leaf on Linden Tree poem. But of course, uh, you know, Remember last time we were we were talking about how that that sentence, which I argued was the sentence, right, the turning point, the turning point when Trotter says, you know, um, I, I I will tell you the 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 story of Tenuvio, right? That sentence. Um, and remember, we we're saying that it's still like in theory, right? An argument could still be made that he was still just recycling Tenuvio, right? And so we were we were saying, well, let's look at the poem. Um, because the poem should give us some 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 clearer indication of whether this is just a recycling or whether this is really the story. And of course, what we saw when we looked at the poem was very emphatically not only um, you know the original poem would have worked well for a recycling poem, the revised poem much much less so. Right, the, the revised poem then incorporates, especially in the ending, of course, as you will remember, uh, all of that forward trajectory narrative. Right, you know, instead of having that kind of fairy tale ending. Um, and I mean that not in the modern sense, but literally ending like a fairy tale um, uh, with uh, just the like, and they lived happily ever after sort of ending that we get of the original poem uh, and instead pushing forward through into the narrative of Baron and Luthien, uh, Baron and Tenuvial still, um, as we uh, uh, as we as we get that not only in the Book of Lost Tales, but of course, all the way up through the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion that we read in The Lost Road. Now, um, just in case, though, just in case that poem wasn't enough to really solidify it we got to look at what we get immediately after that, right? So he goes... Now, he's already indicated... Um, he's already indicated from his... Uh, uh, from his... little sketch, right? That, uh, you know, he, 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 he did a little projection sketch in which he indicated that he was going to um, uh, do a little sum-up, right? So he does that, right? He paused, Trotter, of course, before he spoke again. That is a song, he said, that tells of the meeting of Baron the Mortal and Luthien Tenuvio, which is but the beginning of the tale. Luthien was the daughter of the elven king Thingol of Doriath in the west of the Middle World, when the, when the earth was young. Her mother was Melian, who was not of the elf race, but came out of the far west from the land of the gods and the blessed realm of Valinor. It is said that the, that the daughter of Thingol and Melian was the most fair maiden that ever was or shall be among all the children of the world. No limbs so fair shall again run upon the green earth. No face so beautiful shall look upon the sky till all things are changed. The passage in praise of Luthien that follows is almost word for word the same as that in the Quintus Silmarillion, largely retained in the published work. From Blue Was Her Raiment. So this is the, the quotation, the, the citation rather, that he gives uh, for the uh, passage in praise of, of, of Luthien. Um, You notice what happens here, right? There can, I think, really just be no doubt. I mean, if anyone has any doubt about whether or not this is him recycling or whether he's really making the connection, this paragraph, I think, has to show it, 
right? Think of the things that marked recyclings before, right? How was it that we identified recyclings before? Why was it? Why have I been saying this for so long? Why? Why don't I believe that the references to Silmarillion stuff in The Hobbit is not genuine Silmarillion stuff, but Silmarillion stuff recycled? Um, and the reason is it's not consistent. It's not. It, we know, right? We know how careful Tolkien is to integrate stuff and how much that means to him, right? And he doesn't do that, right? Nowhere does he do that. Every single one of those borrowings from the earlier material doesn't actually fit. He is not trying to make it fit. Elrond, as I said, doesn't fit. The, the, the way that Elrond is introduced in Chapter 3 of The Hobbit does not fit with the story of Elrond and Elrond's backstory in The Silmarillion. The story of Gondolin does not fit with this with it's just it's it's inconsistent it's not the same gondolin and you can tell from several of the references again in chapter three um the the of course the elven king right looks an awful lot like thingo right you can make that argument you know the contention with the dwarves and all that stuff no question lots of similarities but he's not thingo how can you tell no melian there's no queen and no daughter and i'm sorry an elven king who lives in the you know caves you know in a wood uh, next to a river and who has squabbles with dwarves, but is not married to Melian, is not Thingol. That is an intrinsic element of his story, right? There's just, there, there's, just, there's just no way it can be. And again, I'm not saying that this is sloppy. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not saying I don't like it. I like it. It's great. But it shows that it's not really an attempt to integrate these two things. This paragraph, I mean, look at all this, right? That's Thingol. <laughs> right. Thingol of Doriath, her mother was Melian, who was not of the elf race, but came out of the far west from the land of the... You, you, see what this sounds like? The floodgates are open, right? Here it comes. It's all pouring out now. Um, once that contact is made, it just, it it all comes flowing in. And you notice how long this section is, right? Trotter goes on. His prose summary is long. Uh, you know, it's like it's like two pages. He goes on telling the story of Baron and Luthien, and of course, those of you who did the Lays of Beleriand with me will remember, as I referred to last time, other occasions on which the story of Baron and Luthien has come crawling up through other stories that he's telling. We've seen this kind of thing before, right? But even though, I mean, Christopher says, obviously, right? Tolkien knew that the account that you know the summary that Trotter gives needs. Revision, right? It needs to be edited back. Um, it's not. It's not. Uh, um, you know, it's too long as it stands. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we know he is going to revise it. The final version is going to be shorter. But it's a fundamental difference, right? There's a fundamental difference between I'm using some of these ideas and I'm going to recount the story in greater length, and but I'll have to trim it down afterwards, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Trim it down. Trim it down as short as you like, but it won't change the fact that what is being trimmed down is the story, right? Um, not, a re- not a recycling of bits and elements from the story or themes or ideas or episodes, but the story itself, right? And that's obviously what we're getting in this passage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> Tom, yeah, I agree. Uh, it can't. Uh, it can, Tom is uh, making a joke about. Uh, again, this is you know I laughed about this with with uh, with a bunch of people. How short is the uh, synopsis of the Luthien story in the Peter Jackson films? Right in the extended edition when he's singing the song in Elvish, and so neither the audience nor the hobbits can understand what he's saying. And they they ask you know, they ask him. You know who is this? Who is this woman that you're singing about? And he says she died. <laughs> right? We get the two word summary of the Luthien story, which is awesome. So yeah, yeah, uh, this is way better than that, Tom. I totally agree with that. Um. Uh, yes, good, good. Um, <laughs> uh, Matthew asks, could this be uh, Tolkien trying to get his readers interested in the Silmarillion? I mean, I don't. I can't imagine. I mean, I think I joked about that in one of my subtitles last week that, uh, you know, he's kind of trying to do an end around the publishers, right? And and be like, well, you won't publish The Silmarillion? You want a sequel to The Hobbit? Well, I will work my Silmarillion right into the sequel to The Hobbit and get you to print it anyway. Um, I don't think that his uh, his his thinking is like that. I can't imagine he's just like, and this is a teaser for... But... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, clearly this is sort of once the again w- once these two worlds make contact, um, there is this immediate you know sort of organic intertwining uh, of the two things, right? Um, but um, but of course, as we know, the effect of doing this, right? The after the publication of the Lord of the Rings, everyone's going to start clamoring for the Silmarillion, and they'll be clamoring. They'll carry on clamoring until the Silmarillion finally gets published posthumously. So, um, it will certainly have that effect, Matthew. And obviously, I don't think that effect is something that he would have not wanted to do. But I can't imagine that he was really just kind of thinking about, about that in that way. Um, yeah, James was asking a similar question. Uh, um, maybe, I mean, yeah, I, I, I do think that it could be, like, potentially something that would, you know, would he consider it an upside, right, that uh, it would show the publishers that it was viable? Possibly. I mean, of course, obviously, we can't know any of these things. It's all, um, you know, to speculate about that in too much detail is just pure critfic, but um, as Arthur, I think you were suggesting there, but um, but again, t- for me mainly, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking and how he was thinking. All we can see is what happened, right? Um, and what happened, obviously, is this, you know, constructive interference, you know, this constructive resonance here between, uh, uh, between these two when they come into contact with each other, and it's clearly, um, per- you know, just uh, just perfectly natural. Um, yeah, Karita, exactly. It's not just product placement. No way. There's just no way. Uh, absolutely not. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yana asks, was this book going to be Trotter telling the lost tales on the way to Rivendell? <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going to go all the way uh, with that. Uh, I mean, there's not really any evidence that he was planning to be like... <laughs> Okay, it's time for to, it's time to pause for like a rest and a snack and the story of the fall of Gondolin, right? I mean, I, obviously, I don't think he's going that far, but uh, uh, but sure, surely we can see uh, we can see the impulse. Um, 
And yet, James, of course, you're right. As James points out, he has no idea that the Lord of the Rings itself is going to sell well, right? So, I mean, he doesn't know how successful this story is going to be. So it would be all kinds, it would be all manner of presumptuous, wouldn't it? Uh, To be like, okay, this story that I am writing is going to be genius and going to be one of the greatest bestsellers of the century. And so, therefore, I need to work the Silmarillion into this to sort of plant it. Yeah, the whole, that whole line of thinking is really, really flawed from the beginning. I totally agree. Um, But, uh, yeah, good, good. Um, interesting. Tom Hillman says that Trotter telling the stories on the way to Rivendell uh, uh, would seem to explain the introduction of Sam, an ever-eager audience for tales about elves and dragons. Yeah, certainly, Tom. It, uh, it is interesting to me that uh, Sam gets introduced after these two things come together, right? Um, remember that the idea of, you know, Sam and his particular relationship with these old stories post-dates the meeting of these two worlds, right? And I, that, I, I, that I don't think can be uh, entirely accidental. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. All right, so let's, um, let's, let's keep moving. Look at the end of the story. Um, and here, of course, I'm going to be speaking especially to those of you who did the uh, uh, the Lost Road with me, thinking about the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. Therefore they gave this choice to Luthien, because of her sorrow, and of the Silmaril that was regained from the enemy, and because her mother Melian came from Valinor, she should be released from the halls of waiting, and return not to the woes of Middle-earth, but go to the blessed realm, and dwell with the gods until the world's end, forgetting all sadness that her life had known. Thither Baron could not come. The other choice was this. She might return to earth and take with her Baron for a while, there to dwell with him again, but without certitude of life or joy. Then she would become mortal, even as he, and ere long she should leave the world forever, and her beauty become only a memory of song, until that too faded. This doom she chose, forsaking the blessed realm, and thus they met again, Baron and Tenuviel, beyond the great seas, as she had said and their paths led together, and passed long ago beyond the confines of the world. So it was, that Luthien alone of all the elvenkin has died indeed. But by her choice the two kindreds were joined, and she is the foremother of many in whom the elves see yet, though the world changeth, the likeness of Luthien the beloved, whom they have lost. All right. Um... This, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's hard kind of doing this out of context. I didn't want to go back and dig through, you know, sort of dig out passages from The Lost Road, sort of juxtapose this with uh, what was there in The Lost Road. All I will say briefly, um, again, if we need yet another piece of evidence that this is so much more than just a recycling, this is not only clearly an, a retelling of, um, not even a an invocation of the story, but a retelling of the story uh, from the Silmarillion material. It's not only that. It's an advance of the story, right? The story of Baron and Luthien as it stands in the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, and you may remember, it was right around there. Like, he was in the middle of messing with Baron and Luthien when the manuscript was going back and forth, and he decided to set it aside eventually, you know, sort of in the midst of that process. He was, like, starting with Turin and still doing Baron and Luthien. Um, right in the middle of that is when he was he got re- the Silmarillion got rejected again and he turned himself to doing the uh, uh, to doing the to the long expected party right sat down you know set it aside and began writing the long expected party. Um, 
this synopsis, this paragraph, right, which gives the end of the Baron and Luthien story and describes the choice of Luthien, uh, sort of the whole thing, right? What she did, right? When she went over to uh, the Halls of Waiting, right? Um, and, you know, so her being able to go over there, what she did, the choice that was given to her, the choice that they made and what happened and sort of the implications of that. The 1937 Quenta doesn't really fully spell that out in these terms, right? We don't get anything quite this clear and lovely in the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion. So again, if we want even further evidence that this is clearly that we have here a true melding together of his Silmarillion mythology and his new story, um, we see here him, again, not only invoking, not only retelling, but advancing that story. This is better than anything we got in the 1937 Quenta. This is better than we got in the 1930 Quenta Noldorinwa. This is better than we got in the 1928 Sketch of the Mythology. This is better than we got in the Book of Lost Tales. Right? Um, it's, he, is, he is in true, real, obvious storytelling mode. Right? That is Silmarillion storytelling mode here. And again, you can tell just from how long this, uh, this synopsis is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Sharon, I agree. Uh, Sharon says, just think of how much this simple synopsis blows open the world of The Hobbit. Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. Um, and we're going to see some immediate consequences of that. Um, it's one of the things that I'm hoping to get to here today. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, yeah. Kate says, this really truly firms the idea of Luthien becoming well and truly mortal. Yeah. We saw him still waffling about that. There, there was still some uncertainty about exactly what the choice was, what the terms of the choice was, why, you know, they were being asked to choose and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. In the 1937 Quenta, he hadn't fully, it was not this clean and simple. It wasn't nearly that nice. Um, and uh, Kate is suggesting that the concept of foremother might well have led him to developing the character of Strider. Absolutely, yes. I mean that, that you know she is the foremother of many in whom the elves see yet the likeness of Luthien, the beloved. Right? Yeah. Though of course, Kate, it's lovely, right? When uh, when that line gets put into Strider's mouth, all of a sudden now at the end he's talking about Arwen, right? And that's that's fun, right? That's nice. Uh, but uh, but absolutely, even though of course she is she is his foremother as well, more distantly, right? It's not like he's marrying his first cousin. Well, he is marrying his first cousin many, 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 many times removed. But anyway, um, yeah, Kate, I, I agree. And Kate, I love that, right? Um, the idea that Aragorn, you know, the, the sort of the possibility of Aragorn, you know, Strider having his origins ultimately, like he's not just parallel to Baron. Um, you know, the, 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 the eruption of the Baron and Luthien story in the middle of this is you know, perhaps one of the things which indirectly leads there, that, um, that seems fitting. I like that. Um, yeah, good. Um, excellent. Excellent. Um, yeah, James, could this be the trigger to switch from Trotter to Strider? Well, that's one of the things I want to look at here today. Um, Trotter has been the instrument, right? It's Trotter who opened this door. And the question is, what kind of an impact is that going to have on the character of Trotter? Um, and the answer, which I, which I suggest we're going to see as we look at, as we keep going, 
is the transformation is going to be instantaneous, right? You know, he doesn't open his mouth, tell the Baron and Luthien story, and, and, and you know, like Beauty and the Beast, right, suddenly become revealed as uh, Aragorn, son of Arathorn. It's not going to work anything like that. But um, we're going to we're going to see things kind of, I think, moving, uh, moving in that direction. Um, yeah, Arthur makes a good point. Even, uh, even here, even the diction of Trotter, um, uh, where was that? Yes. Uh, the elves see yet, though the world changeth, the changeth thing here, uh, is he's speaking in Silmarillion diction and Trotter doesn't speak in Silmarillion diction. So Arthur, yeah, that, that's, a, we can already see him beginning to, uh, uh, to change. A little bit. Um, good, let's keep going. The important thing that I would emphasize, though, as awesome as this is, right, as exciting as this is to see the two worlds finally coming together, this doesn't mean that uh, it's... we've, like, made this quantum leap forward and, and, and the story is there, right? We, you know, it's, it's, it's tempting to be like, okay, now, the real Lord of the Rings has arrived, right? Um, no. This is... Um, this is still a sequel to The Hobbit. And we can see it still hasn't opened up, right? We don't have, you know, this is not like now the same Lord of the Rings that we all know and love. He's still groping his way there, yet he's made this huge step, right? But we can see in the story. So a a couple passages to, to sort of remind us of the limitations of the story, to kind of curb our own assumptions that we might make as we approach it. The completeness and the resonance of this scene on Weathertop Hill is the more remarkable when we consider that, in relation to the Lord of the Rings, as it was ultimately achieved, all was still extremely restricted in scope. This is, of course, Christopher talking. If the nature of the ring in its effect... Sorry, if the nature of the ring and its effect in the bearer is now fully conceived, there is as yet no suggestion that the fate of Middle-earth lay within its tiny circle. It is indeed far from certain that the idea of the ruling ring had yet arisen. Of the great lands and histories east and south of the Misty Mountains, of Lothlorien, Fangorn, Isengard, Rohan, the Numenorean kingdoms, there is no shadow of a hint. I very much doubt that when the ringwraiths rose up over the lip of the dell beneath Weathertop, my father foresaw any more of the journey than that the ring must pass over the mountains and find its end in the depths of the fiery mountain. In October 1938, he could still say to Stanley Unwin that he had hopes of being able to submit the new story early in the following year. Um, and this is true. If you, 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 know, you, you read his letters, there are a couple of occasions on which he's like, uh, you know, I think I've probably finished it up about four, four or five chapters, maybe. I mean, he, he'll give an estimate, like what we, in retrospect, know to be a ridiculously uh, inaccurate estimate, right? Of, you know, knowing he's still got, like, two books left or three books left. Um, he'll, he'll, he, he clearly thought he was pretty close to done when, he, when we know he's nowhere near to done. So Christopher reminds us here, all we've gotten, right? All we've gotten is we've gotten the power of the ring, the ring's clear connection to the necromancer. We've gotten the wraiths and the ring wraiths and their relationship to the ring and the ring's impact on, on bingo, right? We've gotten a lot of stuff. We have the reference to the fiery mountain and that, remember that one little mention in the projection, in the, that one outline projection, right? Quest for the fiery mountain, how that sort of phrase just kind of emerged, right? But we don't really know, like, presumably for the, de- the destruction of the ring, but what was that going to accomplish? Were they going to do something else at the fiery mountain? We're not really sure. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the geography, as he says, we know that 
they have to, they're going to cross the mountains, right? The Misty Mountains. But where then? And what else is going on? Uh, you know, none of the rest of that stuff. Not the shadow of a hint, Christopher says, of Lothlorien, Fangorn, Isengard, Rohan, or the Numenorean kingdoms. The Numenoreans are there, right? But not the kingdom of Gondor. Um, that's, uh, that's still out of the way. Here's a little bit more on the geography, and this came in uh, in uh, the later chapter. In The Hobbit, the dark tower of the necromancer was in southern Mirkwood. At the end of The Hobbit, it is told that the white wizards had at last driven the necromancer from his dark hold in the south of Mirkwood, but it is not said that it was destroyed. If, if it is on part of that dreary land, Mordor, that the forest of Mirkwood now stands... It might be argued that at this stage of the development of the story, Sauron had returned there, to the Dark Tower of Mordor, in the south of Mirkwood. There seems to be no positive evidence that the geography of Middle-earth had yet been extended south and east of the map of Wilderland in The Hobbit, beyond the conception of the Fiery Mountain, whose actual placing seems to be entirely vague, and it certainly cannot be assumed that my father had yet conceived of the mountain-defended land of Mordor far away in the southeast." Okay, this is a really, really important thing to keep in mind, right? Um, so, if you did The Lost Road with me, you might remember that Sauron comes... Um, Sauron is... is, is the, the land of Mordor is mentioned in The Lost Road, right? In the, in the context of the fall of Numenor, the name Mordor appears, the Black Land. And it's Sauron's headquarters, where his tower is. And the Numenorean, so when the Numenorean, when Arpharazan, the Numenorean, who's not always named that, when anyway, the Numenorean king, right, the last Numenorean king, comes in to make war upon Sauron, which happens, so he comes with his armada, and he lands, and he, and, and Sauron submits and comes back with him to Numenor, right? That's a part of the fall of Numenor story from the very beginning. It's not always the way that he comes over, but anyway, that, that, that idea was there. I don't know about you, but I know that I... Uh, when I hear that, right, when in the context of the fall of Numenor while we were reading The Lost Road, we got that reference to the Numenorians coming and sailing up the great river from the south, right, and finding Mordor, I was totally picturing the regular, uh, the, you know, the map of Middle-earth as we know it, with Mordor down in the south, right, the mountain, mountain-walled realm of Mordor down in the south. Um, we know from references in the first couple chapters here in the Return of the Shadow that Mordor is a thing, right? He, he you know, he's 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 got Mordor. It's vaguely far away, right? Somewhere to the south and east, right of the Shire, um, but uh, it's not clear where it is. So again, south and east, right? So th- between the Numenorians coming up from the south up the river. Right uh, to attack Sauron in the fall of Numenor, and then uh, the reference to the south and east, right where Mordor lies. I don't know about you, but I am immediately falling into the temptation just to picture the Middle Earth map, right as we will come to know it, and uh, and imagine that that's where he was thinking Mordor was going to be. No, no, right. This passage in which Tolkien says that uh, the 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 forest of Mirkwood now stands in Mordor, right? Mordor and southern Mirkwood are the same. The same. Right? So when Sauron is returning to his tower, he's returning presumably to the same tower that the White Wizards kicked him out of, right? 
So this is just Sauron being like, I'm back in Mordor, a.k.a. Mirkwood, southern Mirkwood, which, of course, is south and east of the Shire, right? Both south and east. Um, makes perfect sense. In other words, as Christopher is explaining in this passage, picture the Hobbit map, not the Lord of the Rings map, the Hobbit map, right? With the Misty Mountains and the Great River, because remember... Mordor, a.k.a. Southern Mirkwood, is near the river, too. The Great River. Same river, right? So the Numenorean king in the fall of Numenor could easily have sailed up that river and come to Mordor there, right? So, yeah, it all works, right? It all works. It's kind of, kind of hurts your brain. It hurts my brain a little bit, right, to imagine Mordor and Mirkwood are the same, but it's made a little bit easier if we remember this is still a sequel to The Hobbit and it's using the same Hobbit map. Why would Tolkien begin his story with the assumption, well, I've got to take that map and expand it, right? I need a whole bunch of realms south of the southern border of that map, right? I mean, it's not shocking that that's going to end up happening, but uh, there's no reason to assume that it needs to happen, right? And it seems like Tolkien himself was not making that assumption. So, Hobbit map. Hobbit map. Um, Rachel, was there a Mirkwood listed in The Lost Road? No, I don't recall any references to Mirkwood in The Lost Road. Um, not there. Anyway, they talked about Mordor, but they didn't talk about they didn't talk about Mirkwood. Um, not surprising, of course, because um, uh, because I, we still had the firewall, right? So he wasn't. Uh, it was not explicit. It didn't. It didn't explicitly work that way, right? Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana says, how is that possible, though, when Mirkwood was supposed to have been a green elven wood? Well, Yana, it's qu- we know that the realm of the elven king is in the north, right? We also know that the sort of Mirkwood infection, right, the blackness of Mirkwood, the shift from greenwood to Mirkwood... Um, at the end of The Hobbit, there is that reference that the elves are celebrating that it's Greenwood again, right? Um, so there has been this sort of infection spreading from the south, presumably. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that... Um, I don't know. It's hard, because, of course, if you go backwards, Mirkwood was always a creepy forest. It was a creepy forest first. I'm not sure... Yana, here's what I would want to look up. And I'm ashamed that I don't know this off the top of my head. Of course, Tolkien made several revisions to The Hobbit um, to reconcile it with The Lord of the Rings, chiefly. That reference to the Greenwood, that now the wood will be the Greenwood again, was that in the original version? I'd have to check. But to check, I'd have to walk across the room, and I don't want to pause to check. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember to check and, and, uh, and mention that next time, Yana. But um, I can't remember if that's in the original story. Because Mirkwood was not in all of the original stories. Mirkwood is another recycling from the Silmarillion tradition. Tower Nafuan on Dorthonian um, was Mirkwood. It was called Mirkwood in the Silmarillion stories. Uh, and the description of it, as we looked at in the Lays of Valerian class, in the Iterative Children of Hurin, the description of Tower Nafuan is, sounds exactly the same as the description of Mirkwood. 
when he's doing Mirkwood in The Hobbit, he's obviously recycling Tower Nufuan. We have some really fun evidence of this um, because he uses the same painting. Like, he painted Tower Nufuan, right? And he reused the same painting for... Uh, uh, for Mirkwood, when he wanted to do an illustration of Mirkwood in The Hobbit, uh, he just like painted out the like Beleg and and uh, like Beleg's corpse, right? Because uh, you know he 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 did a painting of Turin and Beleg, um, so he just took out Turin and Beleg and like poof, it's Mirkwood now, right? So we know that he thought of those as um, um, we thought of the he thought of those as the same. So in other words, that was not a wood that had ever been like a kind, benevolent wood, which had slowly fallen under the influence uh, of, uh, of the Dark Lord. Though, anyway, it's, it's a little bit complicated. Um, but anyway, I do think it could work. Maybe the, maybe the forest is expanded. I mean, there's that reference, right? Where was it? Right here. That uh, the, uh, on part of that dreary land that the forest of Mirkwood now stands, right? So uh, Mirkwood, or at least the southern portion of Mirkwood, is like a suburb of Mordor. Or not a suburb, a, a, a portion, right? Um, a district of Mordor, apparently. Um, anyway, anyway, um, we'll uh, we'll see, we'll see. Um, yeah, Brandon says, why does Tolkien end up needing to expand the map? What causes him to decide he needs a new Mordor in the place he put it? We'll see, we'll see. Part of the adventure, right? Just interesting to notice that it's that it's not yet, right? But I don't want to get too fixated on map stuff. Um, speaking of which, I will say this softly. I have a confession to make. Christopher Tolkien loves the maps, loves them, and I understand this was his job, right? I mean, he was the one. It was his. He was tasked by his father at the time of publication. Right? Christopher Tolkien's job was drawing the maps. That was like his role, his initial role when he was still young. He was still in his early 20s, right? And his dad was like, hey, Christopher, I need you to draw the maps, right? So Christopher Tolkien loves the maps and has thought a very, very great deal about the maps. Um, the long passages that Christopher Tolkien includes with like the, like the, like, we must find ways to reconcile the maps and the narrative and all this stuff. And it's like, I will admit I have a really hard time getting quite as excited about the landscape map details. Um, I mean, like, I'm a little bit interested that there was no River Horwell and no Last Bridge, because that's an element of the story, right? So it it changes the story, but, like, how big was the loop of the road when it went north and then south? And, you know, what I I don't find it enormously uh, uh, substantive. I guess, um, like I said, I just I just have to confess I'm not as I don't find that subject to be quite as gripping as Christopher uh, seems to do. Um, but it's cool. See, Philip, you love it. That's awesome. I'm I, that's great. I absolutely encourage other people to love that. And uh, and and maybe Philip, you can teach me something awesome about it. Um, it's just not. I I, I always I, I will confess of the entire. History of Middle Earth series. The parts where Christopher starts talking about the maps are one of the places where, like, my eyes start to cross a little bit. Um, we all have our moments in the history of Middle Earth, and those are mine. Um, but uh, anyway, my point is, I I'm not just wanting to fixate on map details here when talking about the map. The larger point that I'm trying to make is: remember, yes, the story is now in genuine contact with the Silmarillion. That 
switch has been flipped, right? That connection has been made, but we are still clearly writing a Hobbit sequel. That has not changed, right? Despite the new incursion of the Silmarillion mythology, we're still doing the same project and you can see it, right? So again, don't make the mistake of thinking, now we're in the the final world of the Lord of the Rings. No. And you can see it not only in instances like that, the fact that he's clearly still reusing the Hobbit map, but in some of the story details as well. Look at this. Trotter's first return to the Dell is slightly differently told, but this is chiefly because Sam's distrust of Strider is, of course, absent, and there is nothing in the old version corresponding to Strider's words to Sam apart. When Trotter lifted the black cloak from the ground, he said only, That was the stroke of your sword. What harm it did to the rider, I do not know. Fire is better. Notice that... Well, I was going to say shift. Shift from the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um, despite the fact that Trotter has briefly, you know, sort of jumped up to this, like, lore master plateau, right? What we see... If we forget about that for a second, right? So let's... um. Let's forget the whole Baron and Luthien thing ever happened for a moment. Remember Trotter as we met him at the Inn in Bree, you know, or the Hobbit Inn in Bree. Remember that whole wild Hobbit, domestic Hobbit, right? Hobbits of the East, Hobbits of the West, bigger Hobbit world thing that we seem to be doing in Bree and forward, right? This fits in here. Trotter is talking like a wild Hobbit. I still love that phrase, right? He knows, he has experience with the riders. We know he seems to have been tortured by them or something. He's got PTSD about the riders. Um, and so he knows some stuff. Fire is better, right? But notice how hobbitish that is. He's not speaking like a lore master. He's speaking like an experienced adventurer, right? He goes and he looks for the physical evidence, right? Oh, look, here's his cloak. Look, you can see this slash. That was the slash of your sword. I don't know if it did any harm to the, uh, uh, to the, to the rider or not, right? But I do know that fire is better, right? Better to stick to fire for future reference, right? Sharing some of the experience that he has derived, um, from the, from the wild, right? Uh, so again, we're, Trotter is Trotter still, Right, um, he's not like morphed into Aragorn or Strider yet. Right. Uh, similarly, the encounter with the trolls. When they came to the old trolls turned to stone, Trotter walked forward unconcernedly. "Hello, William," he said, and slapped the stooping troll soundly. And he said, "In any case, you might have noticed that Bert has got a bird's nest behind his ear." In the Fellowship of the Ring, the trolls' names from the Hobbit were excluded. Says Christopher. Um, well, we get the names, right? When Trotter and Bingo and company get to the troll, to the stone trolls, their, their hobbit names are recalled. And notice the spirit of the thing, right? Notice the tone. Um, hello, William. And he, you know, uh, he slapped the stooping troll soundly, right? That's, uh, um... That's again. He's this. This is hobbitry, right? More hobbitry, wild hobbitry, but still, but still hobbitry. Um, and again, another clear indication within the sort of the tone of the narrative. He's trying to stay to some extent within Hobbit tone. Um, he has not yet reconciled himself to the idea that this story is like going off on a different trajectory than the Hobbit did. 
right? He's not he's not gone there yet. Um, he's still this is still very Hobbit like. Um, that is, Trotter still sounds like a Hobbit, and this this story is still very much in tone like the story of the Hobbit. Um. Uh, yeah. Um, Yana, you're right. I mean, him address him knowing which one is which does show that he is intimately familiar with this situation, right? Um, and it's fair to wonder where Trotter got his information, right? The question, the mystery of who Trotter is, has not yet been resolved, as we will see. Um, so, okay. So again, we we can see things haven't you know, transformed, you know, things are still, he's still writing a Hobbit sequel, even though he's now doing it in explicit connection uh, with his mythology. And we can also see, of course, he's still not seeing clearly ahead. Um, Look at what we get in Rivendell. This is Bingo waking up and Rivendell talking to Gandalf. Did Elrond make the flood then? asked Bingo. No, I did, said Gandalf. It is not very difficult magic. In a stream that comes down from the mountains, the sun has been fairly hot today, but I was surprised to find how well the river responded. The roar and rush was tremendous. It was, said Bingo. Did you also send Glorfindel? Yes, said Gandalf. Or, rather, I asked Elrond to lend him to me. He is a wise and noble elf. Bilbo is, was, very fond of him. I also sent Rimbedir, as they call him here, that Trotter fellow. From what Merry tells me, I gather he has been useful. Of course, he's, he's the, that elvish name for Trotter is going to change, uh, changes right away. Uh, Christopher points to the fact that its inclusion here shows that this was an earlier, uh, this was part of the first layer of the story. But anyway, um, what I want to draw attention to is notice the, um, the, what, relationships in Rivendell is what I subtitled this slide. Um, Elrond is still diminished, if you see what I mean, right? Gandalf is a wizard, and so all of the magical things... Gandalf's in charge, right? Gandalf's running the show here. Um, did Elrond make the flood, asked asks Bingo, right? Which is a natural question for Bingo to ask, because he knows that Elrond is the boss of Rivendell. No, 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 Elrond didn't send the flood, right? Gandalf did. He's the wizard, right? He just did him. He just magicked the stream, and the stream responded super well. And uh, uh, Nancy, what the sun has to do with it? Um, oh, it comes down from the mountain, and the sun's been really hot today, so the snow up on the mountain has been melting. So the river was running strong anyway. Um, so it was easy to get new. I, basically, just the the uh, the encouragement he had to give to the stream. It didn't need even that much encouragement to flood because it was like practically in flood anyway. So. Um, you know, this, the, the, the stream was very cooperative. In other words, it was an almost natural phenomenon, but not quite a natural phenomenon, right? But anyway, it was, it was Gandalf's magic and pretty easy magic. And then the Glorfindel thing, right? Um, he asked Elrond to lend him Glorfindel. Again, this is still shows Gandalf is clearly in charge, right? Glorfindel's one of Elrond's people, so he has to ask Elrond, but the whole lend him to me thing, now Gandalf is being jocular, right? He's, uh, you know, speaking lightly and flippantly to the hobbits as as, as he does, right? Um, so I don't, I wouldn't read too much into the lend him to me, like he believes he owns Glorfindel or something. Um, but, um, but still, like, this is not, I counseled Elrond to send out Glorfindel, right? 
I asked, I borrowed Glorfindel from Rivendell, or from El- Elrond, so I could send him out, right? Again, Gandalf is, is the one in charge. Elrond is still small, right? Relatively small. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Ah, okay, Yana. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. Matthew has, uh, um, the annotated Hobbit was looking in the annotated Hobbit and uh, uh, just on the Greenwood thing. Um, Matthew reports from Douglas Anderson's annotated Hobbit that uh, the original draft, the first edition of the Hobbit said, the North is freed from that horror for many an age. That is the necromancer, the, from the necromancer. Uh, and that's changed to, the North will be freed from that horror for many long years. I hope the word Greenwood does not appear. Uh, at that point. Um, and the only time Gandalf uses it is in passing when saying goodbye to the Wood Elves. Which suggests not a reversion to Greenwood, but a transformation. It was Mirkwood, and now it's cleansed, and it's going to become Greenwood. Right? Um, anyway. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, back to uh, back to Elrond. Uh, thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. Um, Kate uh, says... Uh, Interestingly, Elrond is still half-elf, not half-elf, son of Eärendil, right? Exactly. Um, this is, Elrond is still pretty small-scale. This kind of sounds like it could still be recycled Elrond, right? We'll come back to, of course, to Elrond. Um, and uh, Brandon, yeah, the uh, good, both Brandon and Ben Vetter were both, um, both noticing the uh, Bilbo is, was very fond of him thing, right? Um yeah, yeah. I, that, I mean, Bilbo's death seems to be entertained here as a possibility, right? I mean, I assume that's what Gandalf would mean by shifting from the present tense to the past tense, right? Probably. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> Arthur suggests, of course, the other possible reading is that Bilbo and Glorfindel had a falling out. Right? It's true. Right? Yeah. Bilbo is very... Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, they had that awful fight. So, yeah, no, he was very fond of him back in the day. I doubt that's what it means, Arthur, but that's a really funny reading. Um, uh, anyway, okay. So, let's uh, let's keep going. Um, oh, and you guys are asking, was Glorfindel recycled? What's going on with that? Uh, more. <laughs> Tom says Glorfindel critiqued uh, Bilbo's poetry, and they're not speaking to each other anymore. Nothing could be more likely, Tom. Um, but uh, uh, but good, good. Okay, so, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, questions about Glorfindel. Is Glorfindel's name just being recycled here? We'll see. We'll see. We'll come back to Gorfindel. I got some Gorfindel passages for for later on. For the time, again, the main thing I want to emphasize here is, again, still the... I want to point to the limitations, right? Uh, the limitations in the scope of the geography and the narrative, uh, still maintaining the kind of the Hobbit tone and the Hobbit kind of general feel and frame, right? Um, and the fact that he's still... This doesn't mean just because he's incorporated the Silmarillion stuff doesn't mean he's any closer to sort of seeing where the story is going to go and what the ultimate destination is, right? Um, similarly, this too, and I want to talk about limitations, this is a really revealing scene. Things work out oddly, but for that shortcut, you would not have met old Bombadil, nor had, nor had the one kind of sword the riders fear. 
Why did I not think of Bombadil before? If only he was not so far away, I would go straight back now and consult him. We have never had much to do with one another up till now. I don't think he quite approves of me somehow. He belongs to a much older generation, and my ways are not his. He keeps himself to himself, and does not believe in travel. But I fancy somehow that we shall all need his help in the end, and that he may have to take an interest in things outside his own country. Okay. Several things here. Look at all the things that we can notice here. First of all, Gandalf is like, Oh, Tom Bombadil! Of course! I should have thought of Tom Bombadil. Right? Notice. Notice how small the world is. Right? If the distance between Tom Bombadil and Rivendell is so far that, like, it's not even worth retracing our steps that far, right? I mean, if it weren't that he were so incredibly far away, and when we think about the size of the map later on, right, and you map out the entire journey of the Fellowship of the Ring on the eventual map, and the distance from Tom Bombadil's domain in the Old Forest to Rivendell is like that bit, right? So, um, so no, no, in the end... Once the whole big picture of the you know the whole story of the Lord of the Rings is comes into focus, the distance isn't going to be the the. Now remember, in the published Council of Elrond, they do say it's too risky to go back to Tom Bombadil, um, but it's not like oh he's just so far away. Oh my goodness! It leads you to wonder. Well, how close is Mordor then? Well, it's just the other side of the mountains, right? You just go to the other side of the mountains, a little bit south. There you go. Can't miss it. Right? Apparently. Um, so, apart from the fact I mean, you've got the mountains, which is significant uh, as far as obstacles are concerned, but uh, um, but you you don't um, get any sense that, again, if you could sort of level the mountains, they're closer to Mordor, maybe, than to Tom Bombadil. Um, does Tolkien believe they've actually, tra- by getting to Rivendell, they've traveled most of the way there? I mean, you kind of get that impression, right? Um now, good. What else? Yes, good. Several of you are pointing out how remarkable it is that Tolkien is entertaining the idea of a, a later role for Tom Bombadil, right? I mean, that's foreshadowing, if I've ever heard it, right? But I fancy somehow that we shall all need his help in the end, and that he may have to take an interest in things outside his own country. We don't know for sure here what Tolkien was thinking, but that sure sounds like a pretty darn heavy hint that Tom Bombadil was going to... So at this moment, right, in this particular draft, Tolkien seems to be at least strongly entertaining the idea that Tom Bombadil is not done in this story. Um, and that he's going to play not only a role, but it's, that sounds to me like an important role. I fancy we shall all need his help in the end. Um, interesting. Kate says uh, it looks like Bombadil's going to play the role of Bjorn. Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, Kate, oh, yeah, let's run with that. Um, yeah, Tom Hillman says he's going to arrive at the climactic battle with the Eagles. Exactly. Um, but Kate, that's a cool parallel, right? I mean, you think about it. They only found Bjorn, right, because they took a disastrous shortcut and and uh, uh, and lost their way, right, and needed rescuing. Uh, so they ended up at Bjorn's, but it was a darn good thing that they did, right? And it's 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 another example of how oddly things work out. Um, 
And if they hadn't gone to Bjorn, they wouldn't have found the good road through Mirkwood, right? And uh, and gotten to where they ended up. They wouldn't have ended up at the Elven King's uh, 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 caves, stronghold, uh, uh, certainly. Um, and, you know, the, ha- having the one kind of sword, the rider's fear, right? That wouldn't happen. So again, like Bjorn, right? They, they happen to... Um, they end up getting helped by him uh, when they are in what looks like a stroke of bad fortune, which turns out to be a stroke of good fortune. And then, of course, the hint that he's going to come back at a climactic moment and uh, turn the tide at the end. Yeah, yeah, I can buy that. I think it's a great parallel. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, good, good. Now, interesting, Timothy Fisher is suggesting that... Uh, in this sense, an, an, another parallel, thinking not of The Hobbit, but of the eventual Lord of the Rings, um, that he could have played a role not unlike Treebeard, right? Where Treebeard was going to have to take an interest in the outside world and uh, and that everybody was going to owe something to him. Um, yeah, in a sense. I mean, you can't exactly say that because he's... Um, uh, uh, Treebeard's not invented yet, right? And so, you know, we're not there. But but again, I, you know, if you kind of think of that parallel, it kind of works, Right. Um, yeah, cool, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, neat. And, and good, yeah, Yana, I agree, the stopover at Bombadil's house and the stopover at Bjorn's house, um, you know, they, they, they get a rest in both places, right, and it serves as a kind of a transitional point. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think that works well. Another thing, of course, I would point out, notice how, um, Tolkien, through Gandalf, is explicitly bringing in the same kind of luck theme that he had going on in The Hobbit. Things work out oddly. Don't they, though? Right? Um, And again, he's drawing attention to the same kind of thing that gets attention drawn to it in The Hobbit. Right? Um, How, again, things seem to be going badly, but the very ill fortune that they have leads to, it turns out, in fact, to be great good fortune and to have led them to the one unique way of getting through the thing. This happens three times over the course of uh, uh, of The Hobbit. And we get all those strokes of luck um, uh, occurring until, of course, Bilbo finally takes the name Luckwearer onto himself. Um, but uh, anyway, so we can see that theme emerging here, right? Uh, in uh, uh, in 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 this version, he's clearly thinking in similar ways uh, as he was thinking about luck in The Hobbit. Okay, so as I said, we can see how, despite the connections with the Silmarillion, it's still a Hobbit sequel. Clearly, still a Hobbit sequel. We don't know exactly what you know. Quest for the Fiery Mountain. How is that going to pan out? We don't. You know, there's still lots we don't know. So lots Tolkien doesn't know. Um, but it's a small world. It's a small story, and it's still mostly maintaining the Hobbit tone. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, see, that's interesting, Tim. Um, it's Tolkien's Providence theme, exactly. Um, you know, and then Tim asks, a.k.a. the arrangement of things by the Valar? Well, Timothy, of course, in The Hobbit, not explicitly, right? Because, again, there's no overt connection there. But, of course, with that door open, that's exactly the question to ask, right? Um we see him interested in the same kind of providence theme here that he was in The Hobbit. How is the providence theme going to change? Is it going to change? 
right? And if so, how is it going to change now that this story is in touch with that larger mythology, as The Hobbit was not, right? Um, and so what we got in The Hobbit was this rather understated theme, um, with only oblique references to what could possibly be behind it, right? What are we going to get in this new world, right? Now that those two worlds have come together, well, let's keep our eyes out and see what we notice as we keep going through. All right, so having seen this, I want to move on to my next section, which is we can see, despite the fact that we're still in a Hobbit sequel and maintaining the Hobbit tone, we can see it's we're not in the same place, right? Things have changed, and there are two ways in which things have changed. One, what Christopher emphasizes, right? I was emphasizing the Baron and Luthien story. I think that that is way more important even than the, than the attack on, on Weathertop. But I don't want to underplay what Christopher Tolkien was emphasizing. Remember that paragraph, and I quoted it last time, about how important the Weathertop attack was, right? How all of a sudden in this scene, all of these things that will remain, you know, sort of at the core of the, of, of the Lord of the Rings story emerge full-fledged and never change again, right? That, that this is a moment, in a sense, the attack of the Black Riders on the Dell and Weathertop is is parallel to, is it's, it's the biggest single story event that's happened since the appearance of the Black Rider on the, you know, sniffing on the trail uh, behind them as they leave Hobbiton. Um, in that moment, we have, you know, the story takes a new direction. In the attack on Weathertop, the story seems to take a new direction too. So that's the first thing I want to focus on, is sort of seeing, showing ways, places in which I, I think we can see this, right? Look at, um, look at the, oops, look at the tone here. The weather remained. This is after the attack on the Dell. The weather remained dry, but was gray with cloud, and they were oppressed with the fear of pursuit. But of this there was no sign by day, and though they kept watch by night, nothing happened. They dreaded to see black shapes stalking in the dim gray night under the waxing moon, veiled by thin cloud. But they saw nothing and heard nothing but the sigh of withering leaves and grass. It seemed that, as they had hardly dared to hope, their swift crossing of the road had not been marked, and their enemy had for the moment lost their trail. Compare and contrast this paragraph with the paragraph when they're going through the marish, having just heard snuffling noises in the bushes, which is like a black rider, and they're like, oh, quick, run away, right? And then immediately they're like, but I would never live in a house, right? Because I don't have to throw my dishes out the window. <laughs> I mean, remember that conversation, right? In which they're like immediately indulging in funny hobbit talk. That is, yes, the Black Riders had come in, but in a sense, they hadn't totally changed the story. Um, the hobbits were not yet acting like hunted creatures. They were certainly not acting like hobbits who have suddenly been overtaken by the dangerous you know, big world that's closing in upon them and this, like, intimidating, monstrous, dark shape hunting them down by by scent, you know, and them becoming hunted creatures. We never saw that, right? They were very casual. Even when Mary is going to... Is that the prancing pony? And he's like, I think I'm going to go out for a walk. A, he says, I think I'm going to go out for a walk. B, their response to him was, remember, it's safer indoors, right? Think of the difference in tone, between this paragraph and remember it's safer indoors, right? Um, we're now uh, really responding. Um, we're really responding now in the uh, 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 
they're, the, the hobbits are responding like they're being hunted, right? It's, it's like they're taking their own story seriously. Um, let's see. Timothy is asking me if I remember exactly where that Christopher was making that point about the... Uh, um, it's the end of the one, uh, the chapter called The Attack on Weathertop. Um, at the end of his commentary. Uh, page 189. There it is. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, 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 again, you can see, right? The Hobbits have changed. The story has changed. It's, you know, it still has those, ho- that, it still has hobbitry going on, right? It still sounds like a sequel to The Hobbit in many ways, but we're getting bits like this now, which were kind of conspicuously absent before. It was all it was all fun and games until the attack on Weathertop, and it is not fun and games anymore. Um, which means we have a problem, right? Remember last time we were looking at all those passages which suggested that Gandalf is being a little obtuse, right? Gandalf knows, Trotter tells him that Trotter's seen the, the Black Riders, and tells Gandalf that they're pursuing Bingo, and what does Gandalf do? Gandalf is like, push on ahead, right? That, that's, that's his phrase, right? Push on ahead, right? Uh, push on and try to catch up with me. I'll, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go with my wagons, and I got, uh, I'll, I'll wait around. I, I'll hope you catch up, but I, then, then he still doesn't, right? I'll leave you some cram, but push on, push on, right? The tone of Gandalf's letter and his message that he leaves in the stones you know, uh, on top of Weathertop no longer fit the new world. Right? They don't. They don't sound like this. If this is the world the hobbits are now living in, the world where they're now. I mean, I, I mean, I love this. The um, oppressed with the fear of pursuit. They're now oppressed. They were not oppressed before. Oppressed is the opposite of what they were. Right now, they are oppressed with the fear of pursuit. And we see them keeping watch by night, dreading to see black shapes stalking in the dim gray night. The yeah. So if Gandalf, Gandalf now knows that they were feeling like this and, and was just like, push on, right? You'll be fine, right? In other words, there's some retcon work to do. And I think we can see some evidence that uh, the awareness of the need for this retcon work is growing, right? Here's uh, um, Gandalf talking to Bingo in Rivendell. I was very suspicious of him at first, this is Bingo, about Trotter. But we should never have got here without him. I've grown very fond of him. I wish indeed that he was going to go on wandering with me as long as I must wander. It's an odd thing, you know, but I keep on feeling that I have seen him somewhere before. I dare say you do, said Gandalf. I often have that feeling when I look at a hobbit. They all seem to remind me of one another, don't you know? Really, they are extraordinarily alike. Nonsense, said Bingo. Trotter is most peculiar. Um... Notice Gandalf, the the lightness of Gandalf's tone. Gandalf sort of again indulging in this uh, in this hobbitry, right? Uh, you know this 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 banter with Bingo, which is uh, which is totally normal, right? Um, but uh, uh, he is here's Bingo talking about how useful Trotter has been, and Gandalf is uh, uh, just. Not taking things very seriously. Again, banter's fine, right? Um, but um, uh, I mean, notice that there's a, a, almost a not quite a rebuke. Right? We should never have got here without him, right? Um, 
And it's like, yeah, yeah. So Gandalf, uh, what do you have to say about that, Gandalf? Right? We should barely, we barely did get here. In fact, maybe you could have waited for us in Bree. Is there a really good reason you didn't wait for us in Bree? Um, what was so super pressing that you had to leave Weathertop and couldn't wait around for us? As it was like you were there, and you left us cram and stuff, which is okay. Which is cool, right? But I mean, anyway, it's you, you see what I mean. Like, to me, anyway, the problem seems to be the the, the Gandalf problem seems to be uh, uh, seems to be becoming more um, acute, and again, it seems to be popping through here, right? Gandalf says rather understatedly, "I am really rather to blame." Yeah, you are really rather to blame, Gandalf. I knew there were some risks. That's one or two risks. It was slightly risky, right? I I knew there were some risks, but if I had known more before I left the Shire, I should have arranged matters differently. I bet you would have. But wait, that doesn't explain. Why didn't you... You did know differently at Bree, and yet you didn't arrange matters differently then, right? But things are moving fast, he added in a lower voice as if to himself, even faster than I feared. I had to get here quickly. Why? But if I had known the riders were already out. Did you not know that? asked Bingo. No, I did not. Not until we came to Bree. It was Trotter that told me. Yeah, he did. So you did know. So why did you wait? And if I had not known Trotter and trusted him, I should have waited for you there. As it has turned out, he saved you and brought you through in the end. Now again, I, I I'm you know I, I don't want to overindulge in critfic here. I'm not saying I'm not trying to claim that this was definitely Tolkien's um, pattern of thought, but we can see what we can see a, a, a pattern seeming to emerge in the narrative, right? When we're in Bree, back in the Bree chapters, it's still kind of fun in games. The Black Riders are there, right? They may or may not be Barrow Whites, um, but they. Um, and they're on the trail, and you should remember that it's safer indoors, right? But we're not... It's not that scary yet, right? We're just, we're just not all that worried. And so it makes sense for Trotter to report it and, and Gandalf, for Gandalf's response to just be push along. Don't wait. And, you know, Trotter makes sure they don't, you know, stay for four days drinking at the Prancing Pony, right? Make sure they push along to Rivendell. Um, and him... So, you know... Now Gandalf seems to be himself trying to retcon things, right? Um, yeah, I, I knew there were risks, but 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 yeah, boy, I wouldn't have let you go by yourself if I'd known at the time I left the Shire that the Black Riders were after you. Man, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have, I'd have waited and come with you there. I guess I did find out at Bree, and I still didn't wait for you, but you were with Trotter, and I have all kinds of confidence in Trotter, and I, and there's a really good reason. No one will say what it is yet, but there was totally an awesome reason why I had, in italics, to get to Rivendell quickly, right? There seems to be the um, increasing desire, right, uh, to uh, uh, give some kind of um, give some kind of an ex- explanation. Good. James is pointing out that in Bree, the Black Riders are still leaving messages, right? Remember, they're like, tell Mr. Bulger Baggins that we're after him, right? You know, that we were inquiring for him, right? Yeah, we're in a different world than we are after the attack on Weathertop. So here I think we can begin to see this new world, 
right? So the, the world of this story is changing. Just as it changed when the Black Riders came in, it's changed again now. Now, the Black Riders on your tail mean something different than it meant before. And therefore, now some of the stuff that's come to this point is not sitting right anymore. And Gandalf's movements and Gandalf's explanations are, I think, the thing that seems to me, anyway, to fit least comfortably now um, here in this, uh, in this new world. Um, Nadia is wondering why does why does Trotter put up with Gandalf? Um, yeah, I do. Good question. I mean, again, the fact the way that he talks about him and stuff seems like you know it's um, uh, seems like uh, um, banter, right? Again, the kind it's the way hobbits talk to each other. It's fine, right? You can always tell how good friends people are by how much they insult each other and everything, but. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, it's <laughs> Nadia says that Trotter is too good for Gandalf. Well, t- for this Gandalf, yeah, I mean, there's no question. Although Gandalf, remember, was the one in charge at Rivendell, right? He's the one calling the flood, and he's the one borrowing Gorfindel to send him out. Um, yet Trotter is clearly the one who is uh, uh, with it, right, in comparison. Um, yeah, good. So, okay. But uh, 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 more in addition to the way we see him kind of the way that the story is no longer fit, the way the story is kind of growing and changing. um, He's also going back to the Wraith stuff. So you remember we had that ring Wraith material right after the Black Riders arrived. But remember a point that I made last week or the week before that material, that ring Wraith stuff was kind of done in the abstract that is, it wasn't explicitly part of the narrative. Remember how it got detached into that conversation with Gandalf, which he never really fit in, right? He thought of reintroducing chapter one as, like, basically the Shadows of the Past, right? The conversation about Gollum, the story of Gollum and how Gollum got the ring. Remember all that stuff? Um, but he never did fully insert it into the narrative. He worked all the stuff out about the ring raids and passing through the ring and becoming invisible and why can you see their clothes? Remember all that stuff? He, you know, he was doing all that ring wraith world building, but yet it wasn't being clearly and fully represented in the narrative. Well, that's another thing that begins to happen now. So he came up with the ring wraith stuff after he after the black riders appear. But he doesn't incorporate it into the story. Now, after the attack on Weathertop, we see him beginning to incorporate some of this stuff. In this chapter, it is made plain that the commands of the Ringwraiths are communicated wordlessly to the bearer of the ring, like at the ford, uh, and in the dell, and that they have great power over his will. Moreover, the idea has now entered that the wound of the Ringwraith's knife produces, or begins to produce, a similar effect to that brought about by putting on the ring. The world becomes shadowy and dim to Bingo, and at the end of the chapter he can see the riders plain, beneath the black wrappings that to others cloak their invisibility. Okay, so the Wraiths have power. The idea that the Wraiths have power to through the magic knife, right, with which they stab him, or sword. Um, wasn't it a sword that he attacked him with in the Dell? I mean, in, in this version? Um, anyway, uh, the fact is that, you know, he's got a magic weapon, right? And the magic weapon has the power to, uh, as Christopher says, bring about or or uh, sort of accelerate the wraithification process, right? Um that idea of their power over his will, that they can silently, wordlessly command him to halt, to put on the ring, right, to submit to them, 
this is different, right? This is different than the the black, the snuffling black bundle on horseback that comes around the corner at that surprising moment when the black riders enter the enter the story, right? Um, so, what their powers as ring wraiths is, how it's connected with the bearer of the ring, or th- that it's connected to the bearer of the ring, the idea of the the wound producing this kind of wraithification, um, it. Uh, uh, we can see see what I mean by this stuff now becoming a part of the story and not just mentioned in the story, but part of the narrative, right? Frodo, excuse me, Bingo being able to see, as Christopher points out here, Bingo being able to see the riders beneath their cloaks. Um, not while he's wearing the ring. He can see them while he's wearing the ring in the Dell. Now, without wearing the ring, he can see them, right? So we, we have really clear evidence that what happens to him when he puts on the ring is what is now being done to him by force, right? Um, and he's being sort of trapped there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, more. What happened at the ford? asked Bingo at last. It seemed so dim somehow, and it still does. Yes, answered Gandalf, you are beginning to fade. They would have made a wraith of you before long, certainly if you had put on the ring again. How does the arm inside feel now? I don't know, said Bingo. It does not feel at all, which is better than aching, but he made an effort. I can move it a little again. Yes, it feels as if it were coming back to life. It is not cold now, he added, touching his right hand with his left. Good, said Gandalf. Elrond bathed and doctored it for hours last night after you were brought in. He has great power and skill, but I was very anxious, for the craft and malice of the enemy is very great. Um you were beginning to fade, right? This idea of fading, which we know is associated with the ring. Again, you can see this being much more explicitly that, you know, that he's told he would be made a wraith, right? Um, Certainly if you had put the ring on again. So he's being entrapped. He's being made into a, a wraith, entrapped into this sort of wraith world. And if he had put on the ring at the Ford, he would never have been able to take it off. He would have been permanently a wraith at that point. Right. Um, uh, interesting. Right. Okay. So we can see him uh, working, working through this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Arthur says that uh, doctored as a verb, right? He doctored it for hours uh, is an odd turn of phrase compared to the rest. Arthur, I would put that in the same category as tobacco. Um, that is, we were noticing tobacco before, remember? You know, those words, those modern words, which he uses in The Hobbit and still clearly feels free to use uh, in the early stages here of The Return of the Shadow. Um, but uh, he wouldn't do in the published Lord of the Rings, right? He wouldn't use the word doctor as a verb because um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a modern that's a modern thing. Um, doctor is a perfectly good verb, Arthur. You can totally doctor something. Uh, of course, that has more than one sense, right? Um, uh, you can doctor something in a in a fraudulent sense, but you can also, you know, you can doctor somebody. That's a it's an older use of the of a modern word. Um, <laughs> no, Arthur, I don't professor something, but you doctor, man, you doctor on a daily basis. Uh, it's the way it is, right? We don't talk that way anymore. Um, but um, so it's interesting that it's an archaic use of a modern word. But uh, but yeah, he, he's not um, he's not leaving this uh, 
He's he, he's not leaving this behind. Um, I do profess, Kimber, exactly. Well, actually, technically, what I do is doctor, right? Doctor means teacher. Uh, uh, whatever. Um, I've long since conceded the word to physicians, even though, actually, I'm a doctor. Physicians are physicians, and it's totally... The word doctor means teacher in Latin, but whatever. It's fine. That's fine. Bygones. Um... Okay, so again, larger point, we can see how this, how the change of the story after Weathertop, right? After the attack on the Dell, we can see the changes. The ringwraiths are growing and developing, and their role in the story, right, is becoming much more clear. And their power is becoming much more great. The tone is changing, right? And we're getting, and Gandalf is getting twitchy. He needs to, he needs to to clean up his... Clearly, we need to do something about Gandalf's story because this doesn't work anymore. Um, and uh, and as I said, even the tone uh, is uh, is shifting. So let's keep going. Are you impressed at how I'm galloping through my slides tonight? It's like I'm taking no prisoners here tonight. Um, but of course, there's more, right? Uh, I now want to turn to look at now that the door to the Silmarillion is open, what happens, Right? Um, and as soon as we ask that question, we can notice <clears throat> some really interesting passages. Uh, who lives in this land? Uh, Bingo asked. And who built these towers? Is this troll country? So this is just, remember them traveling after they've left the Dell under Weathertop, right? And they're going through the Lone Lands and into the Troll Shaws. And uh, they are, um, so this is, it sounds very much like the kind of conversation that they were having on the way to Weathertop, right? But look how Trotter talks now. Just like how Trotter before... You remember what Trotter's lore was before, right? I mean, before the Baron and Luthien moment, right? No, said Trotter. Trolls do not build. No one lives in this land. Men once dwelt here ages ago, but none now remain. They were an evil people, as far as tales and legends tell, for they came under the sway of the Dark Lord. It is said that they were overthrown by Elendil as king of western men who aided Gilgalad when they made war on the Dark Lord. But that was so long ago that the hills have forgotten them, though a shadow still lies on the land. Where did you learn such tales? asked Frodo, if all the land is empty and forgetful. The birds and beasts do not tell tales of that sort. Many things are remembered in Rivendell, said Trotter. That is not how Trotter talked before. Right? That is not at all how Trotter talked before. Um, uh, he's, um, uh, he knew lore of birds and beasts, right? He had wild hobbit lore before. But now the floodgates have opened, right? Remember the reference to, to Gilgalad and Velondil before which I was arguing was recycled. It has all the earmarks of a recycled thing, right? No longer recycling. First of all, we're shifting to Elendil. Elendil was his name, right? Already had been his name. And it's an important name, right? Yes, you could say he's waffling about it at some points, but Elendil means elf friend, right? Which is important in a Lost Road context, the whole origin of the fall of Numenor story. It's important that that be his name, right? Um, so, yeah, Elendil, king of western men who aided Gilgalad when they made war on the Dark Lord. Clearly, this is not a recycling, right? There was once a king of men and an elven king who camped here. That's what we got before, right? Now, we get the last alliance explicitly recalled. 
in very similar terms to what we had, how we had the last alliance described in the fall of Numenor material and in the Lost Road material um, in the previous book. Previous book in the history of Middle-earth, I mean. Um, so, uh, uh, so, yeah, and notice Frodo, right, uh, uh, Frodo took there, um, notices the difference, right? Uh, birds and beasts don't tell tales of this sort. I thought all you had was bird and beast lore, right? That you know you're t- you you can talk to birds and beasts and, and 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 tell us their stories, but dang it, they don't know this kind of this kind of lore, right? But now, no, he's like, oh yeah, did I mention right? Oh no, I've been to Rivendell lots. I know lots of elf lore, in fact. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Good, good. So, so again, we can see the fact that it's Elendil and Gilgalad again right away. I mean, just look at the before and after, right? The the two Gilgalad references, one before and one after, Baron and Luthien happened, right? And bam, there it is. All of a sudden, now we're getting glimpses. Now, this entire region of the world. Remember this region in the Hobbit, right? This region that they're passing through? This region they're passing through, they passed through in a couple paragraphs, and it was just described as like a place where people sang songs Bilbo had never heard before, right? And then into a place where really nobody lived. Um, That's it. That's all we know. Now, notice the shadows of history. Now there are tales and tales that underlie this. Wait, um, there were people who lived here, men who lived in this land, men who were evil, who had become evil because they came under the sway of the Dark Lord, but then they were overthrown by the last alliance of elves and men? Notice, the fact that the Lone Lands and Trollshaws right here between Bree and Rivendell are not just one of the early stops along the progression of Gilgalad and Oendel on their way to the Battle in Mordor. Doesn't it sound like this is more or less their destination? Right? This whole area? They were this is one of the places they were coming? That the last alliance of men and elves was in part to overthrow the men of this region here, who had allied themselves with the Dark Lord. So the 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 battles of the last alliance begin here, near Weathertop, right? Anyway, um so yeah, this <laughs> good James Oakley says the Lone Lands are turning into the Lore Lands. Exactly, exactly. Um, we get this whole depth of history now behind what had been just a blank spot practically on the map. Um, the perception of depth which the Silmarillion mythology gives to the Lord of the Rings immediately, that element is emerging, right? That function, I should say, of the mythology is in, is uh, emerges right away. Look even here, even in a shorter reference. So here's the second uh, really exciting scene, right? The first one was the attack under Weathertop. Now the flight to the ford. Go back, he cried. Go back to the Dark Lord and follow me no more. His voice sounded shrill in his ears. The riders halted, but Bingo had not the power of Tom Bombadil. They laughed, a harsh, chilling laughter. Come back. Come back, they said. To Mordor we will take you. Go back, he whispered. 
The ring! The ring! they cried with deadly voices, and immediately their leader rode forward into the water, closely followed by two others. By Elbereth and Luthien the fair, said Bingo with a last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither me nor it. Notice how we can do that now, right? By Elbereth and Luthien the fair. Elbereth was already there, right? Reference to Elbereth in, the, in, in Gildor's song, right? He could still have uncorked that one. By Elbereth and Luthien the fair. Um, now that we have the story of Luthien the fair, right? Laid out for us in some detail earlier on. Now we have this entire new frame of reference. Bingo has a new frame of reference. We have a new frame of reference. By Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, you shall have neither me nor it. Um, why does he invoke Luthien the Fair? You can see that it's um, uh, connected, right? Um, oh, sorry, yeah, a couple of you were saying there seems to be no evidence of uh, Arnor and Rudauer yet. No. No, no, no. The North Kingdom doesn't seem to be a thing at all. Um, at least not here. You know, that that this realm used to be a realm of the men of Westerness. No, I agree. Clearly, that's not a thing yet. Um, <laughs> good, Nadia says, because she's pretty and just as stubborn as he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, we have... Um, um, she defied the Dark Lord. Exactly, Veronica. Exactly, right? Now she's a role model. Now, all of a sudden, Bingo can stand at the ford and not just be a plucky little hobbit, right? Now, by only telling one story, right, through one poem and a few paragraphs thereafter, we now get this whole... uh, this whole typology thing that Tolkien does, right? Where one of the characters in the modern stories parallels or recapitulates one of the ancient stories from the mythology, right? Now, in no, he doesn't have the power of Tom Bombadil, but he can still stand against the darkness and defy it like Luthien the Fair did. Absolutely, right? He can see himself as, um, as parallel, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, James uh, James Leback says, "Why we're in the same tale still? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now all of a sudden they are in the same tale still. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, James uh, James Stevens. It, it is a reminder uh, or a memory from him and a reminder to the Black Riders that the darkness isn't all that isn't all powerful. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, this is awesome, right?" I guess, notice the difference now in how... And this is, again, think of the difference between this and the recycling stuff, right? Um, The associations of the things when they were being recycled. Gondolin meant something, right? Um, Like when Bilbo discovers that his sword is an elvish blade too, right? And, uh, you know, and he introduces it to Gollum, right? A blade out of Gondolin, Right? And he's, 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 he's awful cheerful about that, right? That means something. That name means something. Um, but that meaning is established within the story, within The Hobbit itself, right? Based on what we've heard about it before. It's an ancient city of the elves that was 
that was lost, right? So it's associated with elf magic and with ancient elf magic. Ancient elf magic from a lost realm of the elves in the ancient world, right? So that's pretty cool, right? Um, so the, his connection with antiquity and with elf magic, and he's a part of this awesome adventure that he's heard stories about, because even Bilbo's heard stories about about uh, uh, Gondolin, apparently, right? So again, but it's all internal. Um, he, Tolkien has to build up what Gondolin means to Bilbo before it can mean anything, right? Now, now we have this whole ability to invoke things. This ability, just by saying, by Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, he can give this whole new dimension to that scene and that story, this completely new resonance that it wouldn't have had, couldn't have had, without his new mythology, or without the new connection to the old mythology, that is to say. And that is pretty cool. Now, there are also some sort of larger story implications. Um, let's, um, let's look at one example. He has seldom overcome any of the elves in the past. This is Gandalf talking to Bingo uh, about Sauron. Uh, the necromancer, that is. He has seldom overcome any of the elves in the past, and all elves are now are his enemies. The elves of Rivendell are indeed descendants of his chief foes, the gnomes, the elven wise ones that came out of the far west, and whom Elbereth Gilthoniel still protects. They fear no ringwraiths, for they live at once in both worlds, and each world has only half power over them, while they have double power over both. But such places as Rivendell, or the Shire in its own way, will soon become besieged islands if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is moving again. Dreadful is the power of the necromancer. Still, he said, standing suddenly up and sticking out his chin while his beard struck out like bristling wire, the wise say that he is doomed in the end. We will keep up our courage. You are mending rapidly, and you need not worry about anything at the moment. Um... We had elves in The Hobbit. We had high elves. We had the three different kindreds of the elves that went off to fairy in the west, right? And some never went to fairy in the west, and those are the elves of Mirkwood, right? The wood elves. We got all that stuff in The Hobbit. All that stuff, all that kind of framework was borrowed. We knew that the elves of Rivendell were like high elves, uh, different from the elves of Mirkwood. We got all that stuff. Uh, again, Tolkien built that all, all that stuff up within The Hobbit itself, right? Through this, uh, this material that he was recycling out of the Silmarillion. Now, things are different, right? Okay. Tolkien, of course, obviously, remembers all that stuff that he recycled, and now it's no longer recycled. Now, now we get to take the stuff that I put into The Hobbit, and it's real now, Right? Now it's not just... I was just playing with it before, right? Now we can treat it for real, but wait a second. If the elves of Rivendell are gnomes, right? If they're, if they're, if they're Noldor or Noldoli, then... No, Noldoli was way back in the Book of Lost Tales, which I've just been rereading, so I've got that in my head. But um, uh, if the elves are Noldor, the elves of Rivendell... Then they would have come out of Valinor, so and and, and so he d- does this whole thing with the Ringwraiths, right? And then with the el- with the, those elves living at once in both worlds, right? Um, it's it's got it's got implications, right? And of course, you can see if you know the Silmarillion well, right? If you if you remember the 1937 Quinta Silmarillion, um, 
we can see how notice how the story is kind of the story of the necromancer too and his relationship with the elves is groping back towards that earlier material right he seldom overcome any of the elves in the past all elves are now his enemies right um the elves of rivendell are descendants of his chief foes the gnomes so now the the history between the necromancer who had been kind of like a free agent in the hobbit right uh, now the relationship between the necromancer and the elves, we've got some background for that, and that begins to kind of peek through, right? Um, no, Stephen, there is, the elves are not yet the origin of orcs. He's thinking of elves that have been dominated and overcome uh, by Thu the necromancer, and by Morgoth. Yeah, yeah, no. Orcs are still manufactured uh, out of slime and hatred. Secret recipe, right? Morgoth doesn't share. So I can't tell you how much slime and how much hatred uh, you need to proportion in order to make orcs. And if I did know, I wouldn't tell you, frankly. So, um, but but yeah, no, orcs are still manufactured at this point. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Notice also how these others, so many of these sentences just start to sound different now that that door is open, right? Look at, um, but such places as Rivendell or the Shire in its own way will soon become besieged islands if things go on as they are going. The Dark Lord is moving again. Remember? how this happened before in the Silmarillion where things were going well but then the Dark Lord was moving and slowly his armies expanded until everything was overtaken and there were only just islands besieged islands right you got Doriath here and you've got Gondolin up there and you've got Nargothrond down here and there's the rest is darkness all around and conquered by the Dark Lord yeah we've seen this before right and that seems to be what Gandalf is alluding to the Dark Lord is moving again Dreadful is the power of the necromancer. Um, so we're going to keep up its uh, courage, but um, uh, you know we're we're going to keep up our courage. But it's it's uh, the 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 precedents are there. There is a good precedent, right? The good guys came and stomped on Morgoth before, so maybe they will do it again. But there's this sense of like, history is repeating itself, right? Um, and uh, this is uh, this is a problem. And now that's interesting, Nancy. Nancy is wondering what unit of measure you use to measure hatred. Good question. I can't tell you how many it would be, but what unit of measure you use. That's an excellent question. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, but, uh, but, but, but that's a great question. Um, Good. Carson Cole points out that this seems to be moving slowly towards, uh, you know, the Dark Lord's plan seem to be getting increasingly apocalyptic, right? Which uh, would seem to be inching us closer and closer to the idea that we're going to save the world by destroying the ring. I agree, Carson. And as Christopher said, we're not there yet, right? But but you're absolutely right. Um, so, Carson, that would imply 
that in one sense, the opening of the door to the Silmarillion is, is one of the things that's moving us towards that, right? If we are in that world, and if, if the Dark Lord is through the Necromancer, who was the servant of Sauron, uh, and we ha- or the, sorry, the, serv- the servant of Morgoth, and if, uh, if we are kind of repeating things, right? If, uh, if, if, if everything is, um, is coming around the second time, in parallel, then, uh, then yeah, yeah, we, um, uh, we have some, uh, we have some work to do to save the world, and that wasn't clear before, absolutely, um, yeah, yeah, um, Brian says, perhaps the end goal will not be to save the world necessarily, but the Shire, certainly the Shire as one of those islands that is threatened, is, um, an issue here, right? Um, so yeah, maybe it is in a, but but it seems to be bigger, right? Um, just as it always was bigger. Again, think back with Morgoth. The parallel. If we really think through that parallel, um, then Bingo would be in the role of Turgon, in a sense. That's blowing my mind. I'm going to stop thinking about that. But that is to say, right, of the, you know, who's trying to save one of the islands, right, one of the besieged islands, right, and in doing so can overthrow the Dark Lord and everything. Yep, yep. Okay, more. Uh, More larger story implications. This in his uh, projection. Consultation. So this... After Rivendell, this is this is Tolkien looking ahead at what's going to come after the arrival at Rivendell and Bingo waking up. Consultation. There you go. One word synopsis of the Council of Elrond, right? The whole chapter of the Council of Elrond summed up in one word. Consultation. Over Misty Mountains. Down Great River to Mordor. Dark Tower. Beyond which is the Fiery Hill. I love the Fiery Hill. Uh, story of Gilgalad told by Elrond? Who is Trotter? Glorfindel tells of his ancestry in Gondolin. Okay. Uh, so they're going to consult. They're going to go over the Misty Mountains, down the Great River to Mordor, because of course if you cross the mountains by Elrond, remember your Hobbit map, right? If you cross, So you're, you're, you're over here, wherever you are. You're over here, right? And you cross the mountains, and then you go down the river, right? Um... Because Mirkwood is big, right? So you come out by North Mirkwood, we're near where Bjorn is, and you've got to go south, right, to get to where the Necromancer was. Remember, uh, Bilbo asked if they couldn't go around Mirkwood in The Hobbit, right? Bilbo asked that if they, you know if, if they had to go through it, if they couldn't go around it. But if you went all the way down, but first of all, it's a long, long journey to go all the way down south around the southern end of edge of Mirkwood, right? Plus, if you go down that way, you'll get down into Necromancer territory, and it's super dangerous down there. Um, well, that's where they're going to have to go now. Right, they're going to have to do that journey that Bilbo was told not to do. Uh, down the Great River to Mordor, Dark Tower. So you have to get past the Dark Tower, I guess, to get to the Fiery Hill, but we don't really know where the Fiery Hill is. Um, and we don't have any idea who Trotter is. He's somebody. Right? He's somebody. Um, Yana is thinking the Fiery Hill being sort of... Uh, compared to the to the hill right of Bag End right you've got the hill on one side of the quest and the fiery hill on the other side of the quest absolutely 
absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, um, um, oh, James, that's a contender. That's a contender. James Oakley suggests that hatred might be measured in baug leaders. That's pretty good. That is pretty good, James. That's going to be hard to beat. I think baug leaders. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> Tom Hillman thinks that the fiery hill sounds like something from a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can agree. I can agree with that. Um, yeah, but uh, I know, Nancy, isn't baug leaders pretty good? That's pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, okay, so... Um, Again, we can see the constriction of the plot. Um, but again, notice, we want to... Now that the door is open, we're going to keep it open, right? Tell the story of Gilgalad, right? So we're going we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna digress during the consultation to have Elrond tell the story of Gilgalad because it's relevant and stuff, right? You know, the last alliance opposing the Dark Lord, right? Obviously relevant, but uh, let's bring in that piece, right? More fully. We've had, re- we, we had a recycled reference to it. Then we had a fuller reference to it. Now we're going to tell the whole story, right? And it's going to be awesome. Uh, Gorfindel tells of his ancestry in Gondolin. Um, yes, Carson. Sure does sound... Like, he's recycling Gond- uh, uh, Glorfindel. We'll come back to that. We'll, we'll come back to Glorfindel in a second. Um, more, oops. More. Okay. Um, here's Christopher's comment on it. Also very noticeable is Glorfindel tells of his ancestry in Gondolin. Years later, long after the publication of The Lord of the Rings, my father gave a great deal of thought to the matter of Glorfindel, and at that time he wrote, The use of Glorfindel in The Lord of the Rings is one of the cases of the somewhat random use of the names found in the older legends, now referred to as the Silmarillion, which escaped reconsideration in the the final published form of The Lord of the Rings. He came to the conclusion that Glorfindel of Gondolin, who fell to his death in combat with a Balrog after the sack of the city, and Glorfindel of Rivendell were one and the same. He was released from Mandos and returned to Middle-earth in the Second Age. This is fascinating, right? Okay, so Tolkien says, I totally recycled Glorfindel. Totally recycled Glorfindel, right? Um, and it sounds like it. As Carson and Ben were both talking about, it sounds exactly like a recycled thing. We go back to that, right? Um, as Ben pointed out, Glorfindel doesn't say he's from Gondolin, right? It's not Glorfindel tells of the old days in Gondolin, right? Glorfindel tells of his ancestry in Gondolin. Glorfindel's ancestors came from Gondolin. So he knows the story of Gondolin. Maybe we're going to get some version of the story of Gondolin. But his ancestors lived there. He is not Glorfindel, Balrog's bane, Ben, as you say. Exactly. That's, this is classic. It sounds exactly like Elrond, like, like Gondolin itself, um, like the Elven King in The Hobbit, right? So Tolkien, later on, decades later, uh, like 20 years later, 
not quite 20 years later, because he was dead 20 years later, but like 15 years later, does some serious retcon, right? And he decides retroactively that Glorfindel and the Lord of the Rings is going to be the same, right? So we're gonna, he's going to identify those two, and he makes up a story to explain an, a, a, a sort of a justification for why it is that Glorfindel's allowed to return and all that stuff, right? Um, so... Uh, Yeah. Um, and it works, and it's cool. And yeah, Veronica, it's nice. Isn't it nice about how it you know, foretells the death and resurrection of Gandalf? Yeah, it's, it's lovely, right? It's a, it's a classic Tolkienian piece of retcon. But here's the interesting thing. Glorfindel seems to be recycled, right? But the door is open, and we see him. Uh, this is a quotation from Tolkien himself, right? Uh, Tolkien said, the use of Gorfindel in the Lord of the Rings is one of the cases of the somewhat random use of the names found in the older legends, right? So, it's like Tolkien looking back and saying, there was a time when I used to just recycle stuff before I made the connection. I really connected and integrated the mythology, right? And so I still have work to do in some places to go back and clean that up and make it all work with the old mythology. But there was a time before I was integrating it with the mythology when I just recycled things. And Glorfindel's an example, says Tolkien, right? But we can see that that's not exactly the case. Right? That is to say, his recycling use of Glorfindel does not predate the integration of the mythology and his story. Right? It's clear. We can see it all around here. We can see what's already happened to Gogolad and the Last Alliance. Right? He's gone from recycled to integrated into in one chapter. Right? And yet, it's after that. So that's the fascinating thing about the Gorfindel recycling. I don't question that. But I do question, as Christopher does in many other places, I do question Tolkien's memory here. Tolkien is speaking of it in retrospect, as if the recycling of Gorfindel had predated the integration. It doesn't predate it. He's already started the integration, but for some reason, Gorfindel is recycled. Why? I don't know. No clue why. Why has he, when he's now in integration mode, we're integrating Luthien and the story of Luthien and paralleling it with Bingo's, we're, we're integrating Gilgalad, right? And you're going to make that a major feature, right? Why are we recycling? Well, given that it's Glorfindel, um, that is, if we, if we accept as a given that he's naming this elf Gorfindel, it would make sense that he would integrate, that he would recycle rather than integrating, right? Um, because Gorfindel's dead. Gorfindel's awkwardly dead, and therefore it really can't still be Gorfindel. Unless, like, he came back from the dead and 
came back across the sea, which is perfectly plausible and works fine. But again, it takes a lot of effort to get there, right? Therefore, it would seem that the only thing that is necessitating a recycling here instead of an integration is his insistence on using Gorfindel's name. And I don't know why he did. Apart from that, you know, Rachel says, maybe just really liked the name. Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, Gor- golden-haired Gorfindel, he just wanted the elf to be gold- golden-haired Gorfindel, so he's like, forget it, I don't care. <laughs> I'm, making, I'm making this elf into Gorfindel, right? And he clearly, even the, I mean, even the, even just this, right? The very sentence fragment, uh, well, no, it's a sentence, right? The very sentence which shows, which proves that this Gorfindo is recycled also does open up some integration, right? Um, this Gorfindo is clearly going to be related to, descended from the original Gorfindo. Probably. I assume so, right? If this Gorfindel is from Gondolin, that can't be a mistake. Yes, I know that elves never name their children after their ancestors, but that's a kind of thing that... That's the kind of thing he changes his mind about a lot. I could very easily believe that at the moment he wrote this sentence, Tolkien was entertaining the idea of elves naming their kids after their ancestors, right? Um, so that Gorfindel of Rivendell is a descendant of and named after Gorfindel of... Uh, uh, of of Gondolin, right? So that it's not that he's going backwards and just unintegrating Gondolin entirely, right? He's gonna integrate Gondolin, but he insists on calling. Gorf- so this is Gorfindel, but it's not Gorfindel. So he looks recycled, but you know, it's it's anyway. So it's kind of awkward. But again, I think it's it does seem to be uh, uh, it does seem to be at least partially integrated or moving in the direction still of the integration, Brian, as you say, because it does give him an excuse to tell the story of Gondolin, and that seems to be what we're getting here, right? Um, again, this, this second little subparagraph, this is like, I would subtitle this, The Floodgates Are Open, right? <laughs> I mean, if you look at this, look at this, we have... Um, Four fragments, okay, five, counting the first word, five little fragments about where the plot is going. And then we get a whole second thing. Okay, so first I'm going to map out the plot, then I'm going to map out which Silmarillion stories I'm going to get to work in along the way, right? Gil Glad and the story of the Last Alliance? Check. The Fall of Gondolin? Check. Going to work that puppy in too, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, that seems to be how it's working. So in the end... It does look like Gorfindo is a recycled name, but again, it's still not operating in isolation like it did before. It still is going to lead to what seems to be the real integration of the Gondolin story, if not the real integration of the Gorf, of the old Gorfindel character, right? Um, so I think when Tolkien is remembering this, you know, 15 years later, no, it is more than 20 years after he wrote this in 1938. Um, so yeah, goodness, from then it's a long time. It's like 30 years later. Um, that he's recalling it. And so when 30 years later he recalls this and just chalks Glorfindel up to one of those recyclings that he used to do back in the day, I think he's misremembering. Um, or at least there's a little bit of, of sort of, of of slippage there. Um, Stephen asks the excellent question, are elves still reborn as their own descendants by this point. 
Stephen, it's one of those things that kind of drops out, but as Christopher Tolkien is always quick to remind us in his commentary on the later Silmarillion revisions, just because Tolkien left something out and doesn't say a thing again that he said before doesn't absolutely prove that Tolkien has changed his mind about it and decided to cut it out. Sometimes that's what that means, but sometimes it just means he's cut it out because... He doesn't want to include it at that point or doesn't want to spell it out, right? He's just trying to be, you know, he's changing how he's writing it, not necessarily changing how the conception works. Um, And so, yes, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, in the Book of Lost Tales, Tolkien says explicitly that elves get reborn in their descendants. So your grandpa dies, grandpa elf dies, and you have a baby, and the baby that you have is grandpa reborn, that happens among the elves in the original version, the Book of Lost Tales version. Again, that ceases to get mentioned later on, but it may well still be the conception, in which case, Stephen, as you point out, um, as you point out, um, the, uh, uh, um, Gorfindel, it could be the same Gorfindel reborn, Right. Um, so his ancestry in Gondolin could be like back in my old life when I lived in Gondolin. Um, you know, when I was my own great grandfather, I, you know, fought the Balrog and that was awesome. Um, quite possible. Quite possible. Um, Ben, what a great point. Um, Ben says, list of Silmarillion stories to work in. Um, let me, let me go back to this. Um, uh, Gilgalad, Gilgalad, Gorfindel, Trotter's identity. That is this, there's this like funny little thing. Who is Trotter, right? This might be just Tolkien going totally stream of consciousness, right? This one little thing might not have much to do with this, with the other two things, right? But it is kind of sandwiched in there, right? So is there a chance when he says, who is Trotter? That he's thinking, like, how's Trotter going to fit in to the whole Silmarillion thing? Right? Um, maybe. Who knows? Um, maybe Trotter's going to end up being having connections, so in some sense, connections, back to the old stories. That'd be interesting. Okay. Um... The lands and islands in the northwest of the great lands of the old world were called long ago Beleriand. Here the elves of the west had dwelt for a long while until, changed to during, the wars with the power of darkness, in which the power was defeated, but the land destroyed. Sauron alone of his chief servants escaped, but still after the elves had mostly departed, changed to Although most of the elves returned again into the west, there were many elves and elf friends that dwelt changed to still in after days in that region and thither came many of the great men out of uh, and thither came many of the great men of old out of the far west island which was called by the elves Numenor but by some Avalon changed to out of the land of westerness that they called Numenor for Sauron had destroyed their island changed to land and they were exiles and hated him there was a king in Beleriand of Numenorian race and he was called Elendil that is Elf friend, and he made an alliance with the elf king of those lands, whose name is Gilgalad, 
Starlight, a descendant of Theanor the Renowned. I remember well their counsel, for it reminded me of the great days of the ancient war. So many fair princes and captains were there, yet not so many, or so fair, as once had been. This is Elrond, of course, talking. Um, he's doing it, right? He threatened to do it before. Story of Gilgalad told by Elrond? Yeah, baby, we're going there, right? We're going to integrate the entire story of Gilgalad. If you remember the Lost Road, this is it, right? This is it. Um, just as we saw at the end of the prose narrative of Baron and Luthien that Trotter gives after the poem, we see at the end of his narrative, we see Tolkien moving forward the story, right? The same thing here. This is like a revision of some of those passages from the Fall of Numenor. Remember the last Alliance passages we were looking at uh, in the Fall of Numenor material back then? Um, and it was still kind of, he was kind of changing his mind and people like, was was it Elrond? Sometimes Elrond himself was the king, remember? Uh, and uh, anyway, so there, there were lots of things that were still kind of up in the air. Here we have him going through, telling it in the, some similar words that he used back then, right? I mean, it sounds very similar. This is a revision of Silmarillion material now. <clears throat> being incorporated, being worked in to the Lord of the Rings story. Um, and here we are, right? This is like, I know I, I, I joked, I, I subtitled this Gathering Round the Tail Fire, right? Because this is now, um, it's becoming a little Book of Lost Talesy, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Arthur's a little surprised by Feanor the Renowned. Well, he is renowned, isn't he? Pretty famous. Uh, I mean, jerk, but famous, right? Yeah, no question. Um, yeah, and Kate, exactly. Elrond is Elrond, right? The Elrond of the Hobbit is now the Elrond of the Silmarillion. My father was Eärendil, who was born in Gondolin seven years before it fell. And my mother was Elwing, daughter of Luthien, daughter of King Thingol of Doriath. And I have seen many ages in the west of the world. I was at the council I speak of, for I was the minstrel and counselor of Gilgalad. First of all, I wish Elrond had stayed the minstrel of Gilgalad. Just the imagery involved there I find completely delightful. Um... But, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. And, uh, yes, Arthur, there is, uh, there is a, a generation missing from the published Silmarillion. We'll get, the Doriath story is a total mess, and he's, he's still working out the details there. But yeah, we don't have Dior yet, but it's fine. We don't need him yet. Um, but, um, <laughs> handsome but forgotten, uh, says Kate of Dior, absolutely. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um uh uh good. Okay. So um this is not the Elrond who was kind as Christmas in the Hobbit, right? Who was one of those, you know, there there were still some people hanging around who had the blood of the elves and heroes of old, right? Um and Elrond of of them, of that amorphous crowd of half-elven people, Elrond was their chief. Right, that's how we're introduced to him in The Hobbit. No way, man. Full integration, right? This is Elrond. And remember, for those of you who haven't led the, read The Lost Road, Elrond was a big deal. Elrond was a much bigger deal in these earlier versions of the Silmarillion than he is in the later versions of the Silmarillion. Um, the, uh, 
the effect that reading the published Silmarillion has on my reading of this parallel passage. So you remember when Elrond does this in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? At the Council of Elrond. And he's like, oh, I remember the last alliance. It was awesome. Um, but not as, but, you know, it wasn't nearly as splendid as, like, the War of Wrath at the end of the First Age, right? I remember it all. And, and remember Frodo's like, wow, dude, you're super old, right? That's kind of amazing. So the impression that we get of Elrond is, like, he is ancient and he has seen all the things. Then you read the published Silmarillion and you're like, ah, uh, no, Elrond saw almost none of the things, right? Elrond was born at, like, the... The 11th hour, not even, he was like born at, you know, the 11th hour and 45 minutes of, uh, of the, you know, he's like right, like, you know, 15 minutes before the clock strikes midnight on the first age Elrond is born, right? So he barely was a part of any of it, in fact. Um, so I always find, I mean, of course, Elrond is a big deal and he's important and everything, but um, his role in the published Silmarillion is relatively small. Not so the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion, or the 1930 Quentin Ulderinwa, or the 1928 Sketch of the Mythology. Elrond is a big deal. In fact, especially as we got in the, the transition. So in the, in the beginning of the Lost Road class, we were looking at how what Tolkien is doing when he begins writing the Numenor story, he's essentially writing a sequel to the Silmarillion material he had, right? He had the story of what we now call the First Age, uh, the story of of the elves and their rebellion, and they go to Middle-earth, and their wars with Morgoth, and then Morgoth is finally overthrown. The end, originally, that was like the end transfer into the modern era and the dominion of men, right? Um, but now we get, no, 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 Fall of Numenor, right? We get a sequel, to that. And so we get the island of Numenor and we get Sauron who is still around right because he's not totally vanquished and then he comes and he 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 may, and he's called Sauron for the first time in the fall of Numenor stories. Um anyway, so he was uh uh but but Elrond at so at the end of the first age there are some elves that are still left and Elrond is like the embodiment of elvendom. Like all the bloodlines lead to Elrond. He is like the he's yeah. He's the representative of everything that happened in the First Age. He's the distillation of the story of the Silmarillion at the end, right? And that's the role that he plays, and he's the one who lasts, right? He's the one who survives at the end. And so, therefore, when the fall of Numenor comes around, he's the link. So, they want to make... So, Tolkien wants to do two different things with him. Tolkien wants him to be there in Middle-earth. He wants to be the king of the elves who stay in Middle-earth because he's like the embodiment of all the elven, the elvish things, right? But he also kind of wants to make him the king of Numenor. Um, and there are some versions of the Numenor story where Elrond is the king of Numenor. So, of course, eventually, uh, exactly as Carson says, uh, Elrond was so big, Tolkien had to clone him. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. In the end, Tolkien solves the problem, right? He wants to have his cake and eat it, too, with Elrond. So he gives Elrond a twin who didn't exist before, right? Elros is very late in the story, and we celebrated the final appearance of Elros on the scene uh, in the fall of Numenor, in, in the ad, advanced stages of the revisions of the fall of Numenor, when Tolkien finally solves the problem by giving Elrond a twin brother so that Elrond can remain in Middle-earth as the, like, living relic of Elvendom, right, and can have a twin brother who can be king of Numenor so he can sort of essentially be in both places at once. That's a big deal. Um, so, uh, uh, so we have the, 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 the real Elrond, uh, uh, is, who was a huge deal at this time, is back in his full glory. So now Elrond of Rivendell, think about how 
quickly this stuff is changing. A couple of pages ago, Gandalf was like, I asked Elrond to lend me Gorfindel, right? Um, oh no, Elrond didn't send the flood, I did, right? It seems like Elrond has grown up since then, right? Um, anyway, I'll, 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 I'll transition. I'll use this to transition next time. This is my last slide, by the way, slide 21. And, uh, but we are, we're, 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 we're over time. So I'm going to stop here and I'll use this last slide as a transition to next time. I'm tempted to go on just so that I can say I completed all 21 of my slides, but 20 out of 21 is still kind of something to brag about. So I think I'll, I think I'll, I think I'll stay there. Um, all right. Next time we'll go, but we'll 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 pick up with Elrond again, and then we'll go on. Now I want to do the next the next chapter is the uh, the next chapter after this one that we're talking about here tonight uh, is the last chapter uh, in this phase, right? As Tolkien is kind of projecting and looking forward and trying to figure out where to go from here, then we get the second phase. Um, so do start the second phase. I'm gonna I, I hope to do this next chapter and the first chapter of the next phase. Okay, um, so uh, that's my goal for next time. Since we're kind of totally off the original schedule, I uh, just want to let you know what you should be making sure to focus on reading. And that's good. I will see you guys next Wednesday. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, and I will see you next week for more fun as we watch the Silmarillion continue to unfold in front of us here uh, as the story continues. Thanks, everybody. Good night. <laughs>